This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, February 19th. I'm Rachel Delgidis. And I'm Virginia Allen. Earlier this week, America said goodbye to conservative radio talk show legend Rush Limbaugh. Limbaugh greatly impacted talk radio and will be dearly missed by his many listeners. Brent Bozell of the Media Research Center was good friends with Limbaugh, and he joins the show today to share a number of stories about working with Limbaugh and explain the legacy the radio giant leaves behind. Don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please be sure to leave a review or a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Now onto our top news. President Joe Biden unveiled a bill on Thursday that would give 11 million people a path to U.S. citizenship. The legislation, which includes a provision to give citizenship to dreamers or those who are brought to the U.S. by their parents, is led by Congresswoman Linda Sanchez, a Democrat of California, and Senator Bob Menendez, a Democrat of New Jersey. Per The Hill, the Biden administration said that the bill is an opportunity to reset and restart conversation on immigration reform labeling the bill as Biden's version of what it takes to fix the immigration system. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot has launched a review of 41 statues and monuments in an effort to confront the hard truths of Chicago's racial history, according to the Chicago Sun-Times. The list of 41 statues, plaques, works of art, and other monuments include those of four former U.S. presidents, Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Ulysses S. Grant, and William McKinley. From now until April 1st, the public have the opportunity to review the list of monuments and provide feedback online on whether or not the works of art should remain in the public square. Per the Chicago Sun, the criteria for the statues, plaques, or other works of art being added to the list for review include promoting narratives of white supremacy, presenting an inaccurate or demeaning portrayal of Native Americans, celebrating people with connections to slavery, genocide, or racist acts, or presenting selective, oversimplified, one-sided views of history. Lightfoot said of the review process that it provides a powerful opportunity for us to come together as a city to assess the many monuments and memorials across our neighborhoods and communities to face our history and what and how we memorialize that history. President Biden said he is willing to give reparations to Black Americans. Here's an exchange a White House reporter had on Wednesday with Press Secretary Jen Psaki about the Biden administration's support of reparations via Forbes. The president during the campaign supported the um, study for reparations, the committee to study reparations. There was a House Judiciary Committee hearing today. Um, does the president support the legislation? He stopped short of saying that during the campaign. Would he sign that if it came to his desk? Well, he's supported a study of reparations, which I believe is what's being discussed and studying the continuing impacts of slavery, which is being discussed in this uh, hearing on H.R. 40, I believe it is. Uh, and he continues to demonstrate his commitment to take comprehensive action to address the systemic racism that persists today. Obviously, that is uh, having that study is a part of that. But he has signed an executive order on his first day, uh, which would begin to deliver on his commitment to having an uh, across-government uh, approach to addressing uh, racial inequality and, uh, and uh, making sure equity is a part of his entire policy agenda. But he certainly would support a study of reparations. Uh, and we understand uh, understands that we don't need a study to take action 
right now in systemic racism, so he wants to uh, take actions within his own government in the meantime. Would he support the bill? Because you're talking about the study, but if the bill came to his desk, would he sign it? Well, uh, it's working its way through Congress. He'd certainly support a study, but we'll see what happens through the legislative process. Question on that. Um, the president has signed quite a few executive actions. Mm -hmm. Why not, on this issue, create a commission and by executive order? He actually signed a number of actions on racial equity in on his first day or his first couple days in office uh, because he felt it was essential to uh, send the message to the American people and the world that uh, having an across-government approach, ensuring that equity is a central part of his policy agenda, uh, was you know not just a, a, single, a singular issue, but something that would be a part of every policy issue he approaches, whether it's health care, whether it's economic inequality, a range of issues. That's his approach and how he's uh, trying to um, you know change, address the root causes of racism in our country today. But he doesn't support a reparations executive order. He won't sign that. Again, he well, it, it would be up to him. It's a, you know he he has executive order authority. He would certainly support uh, a study, um, and we'll see where Congress moves on that issue. Herschel Walker, a former pro football running back who was black, said he believes black Americans shouldn't get reparations. Here's what he had to say via Keith Boykin. Reparation is only feeding you for a day. Is removing the sign of for whites only, replacing the sign for no education here. Black Americans asking for a hand up, not a hand out. If reparation is a free, is a fee, or a correction for a terrible sin of slave owners, government, and others, but we punish the non-guilty party, if is, is it not creating division, a separation with different races? I feel it continues to let us know we're still African-American rather than just American. Reparation or atonement is outside the teaching of Jesus Christ, who you are teaching, who will not be teaching the word of God. Now stay tuned for my conversation with Brent Bozell as we discuss the life and legacy of Rush Limbaugh. Americans use firearms to defend themselves between 500,000 and 2 million times every year. But God forbid that my mother is ever faced with a scenario where she has to stop a threat to her life. But if she is, I hope politicians protected by professional armed security didn't strip her of the right to use the firearm she can handle most competently. To watch the rest of Heritage Expert Amy Swear's testimony on assault weapons before the House Judiciary Committee, head to the Heritage Foundation YouTube channel. There you'll find talks, events, and documentaries backed with the reputation of the nation's most broadly supported public policy research institute. Start watching now at heritage.org YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe and share. I received a diagnosis. You all know, but I, there's something I want to say about it. Um, stage four advanced lung cancer, terminal diagnosis. The objective of everybody involved was to extend life for as long as possible, as enjoyably as possible. Now, many of you have been through this. Lots of you have been through this as individuals, as families. And you know what that means, medical treatment that is designed to 
attack the disease as greatly as possible while maintaining a quality of life that makes it worth it. Some people can't deal with the side effects of chemo or other forms of treatment. Well, back in late January when I received this diagnosis, and I was shocked. I was stunned and I was in denial for about a week. I mean, I'm Rush Limbaugh. I'm, I'm Mr. Big, the vast right-wing conspiracy. I mean, I'm, I'm indestructible. This can't be right. But it was. And what I didn't know at the time that I learned later in the course of the year was that I wasn't expected to be alive today. I wasn't expected to make it to October and then to November and then to December. And yet, here I am. And today, I've got some problems, but I'm feeling pretty good today. God's with me today. God knows how important this program is to me today. And I'm feeling natural in terms of energy, normal in terms of energy. That, of course, was conservative radio talk show host and legend Rush Limbaugh talking on his program this past December about his battle with cancer. Limbaugh lost that battle at the age of 70 on Wednesday, and the world is mourning his loss. He was, he was a titan in the world of radio, and he really had a way of going straight to the heart of an issue and challenging people to think for themselves. Here to talk with us about the life and the legacy of Rush Limbaugh is Brent Bozell, founder and president of the Media Research Center. Mr. Bozell, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So shortly after the news broke of Limbaugh's passing, you wrote on Twitter, you had this to say, Rush was one of the most humble men I have ever met. I once told him that America would have been lost, but for him, he recoiled, insisting he'd done no such thing, but he did. And so America mourns a magnificent man. Could you talk a little bit about your relationship with Rush Limbaugh? Sure. You know, I've struggled to remember when I first came in contact with him, but it, it was right after his show began because it was uh, right after the Media Research Center was launched in 1987. So I think his show was launched in 1988. And uh, I invited him to come to a, a roast that I was doing of Ollie North. And I had uh, uh, people like Pat Robertson and Phil Crane and uh, men like that and Rushkin. And I think that was probably his first national foray that he did. Uh, and that just uh, started a friendship. Uh, we, I, I was always uh, uh, admiring of him on so many fronts, uh, the personal and the professional. The, 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 there are so many stories on both that are being retold by people. But the common theme is the man was brilliant. Uh, the man had a an understanding of the world. Uh, he was principled, and he was also a genuinely nice man. Mm. Do you have a favorite memory of Rush Limbaugh as you think back on your interactions with him? Yeah, I think I do. I mean, I've I've got I've got several. Um, I, I'll give you two. One was 
about, oh, I don't know, whenever it was that he came out of his drug rehab program, um, Rush had not made any public appearances. I invited him to have some fun at one of our big galas in Washington, D.C., and to, in fact, crash the gala, um, to come on the, the stage uh, unannounced. Uh, but this would be his first public appearance since coming out of, of rehab, since going through what was a controversy or a scandal where he had been so roundly ridiculed by his enemies uh, for the struggle he was going through. And uh, so on the appointed evening, uh, we were doing our gala and we had guests and speeches and uh, some such thing. And, and uh, suddenly at, on cue, we, we started the, the music playing, uh, his theme song playing in the background and it got louder and louder. And I watched from the stage looking at the audience and everybody started looking at each other just wondering what was happening. And out came Rush and the place went wild. <laughs> now, that wasn't, that wasn't the teller. The teller was what happened at the end of it. He gave a talk huge standing ovation. And when he came off the stage, he looked at me with this kind of surprised smile on his face. And he said, Brent, they gave me a standing ovation. As if he were thinking, well, maybe they wouldn't like him anymore. It, it, was, it, was, it was that kind of genuine spirit. Uh, but my second memory is one uh, I have more fun with because it's more unique. This goes back to the very, very early times when he was becoming a national figure. And he, he and I were talking one day, and, and uh, he said, you know, 60 Minutes has contacted me, and they want to do a profile on me. And, and I said, Rush, for the love of God, why are you agreeing to do something like this? And, and I said, look, look um, uh, what I want you to do is, and, and he told me he had done the, the interview. I said, what I want you to do is to tell me when the show is going to air. And as a gift, I'm going to buy you a one-way ticket to some island in the Pacific uh, as my guest, one way. And I'll tell you when you can return based on what they're going to do to you. And uh, so, so uh, a few weeks later, we're having dinner at Ruth Chris's in Washington. And he, and he said, you know, I got a call from uh, CBS and they're going to air it on Sunday. Well, what, what's the island that we've chosen? Because I've got to get to the, to, to the uh, travel agency to buy you that ticket because you've got to get the hell out of this country. I can't <laughs> believe that. And he said, he said, oh, but they told me I'm going to like it. And I said, oh, that's the kiss of death. That's what they tell you when they're going to kill you. <laughs> and so on the appointed day, I, I don't know if it's in the files. And so my memory may not be 100% clear, but it went something like this. It began with a a shot, a, a video of him get on his radio show. First, he's talking about, I think it was gays, and he's making fun of gays. And at the end of it, they play it, they play that video to some gay organization. That gay organization is very upset and denounces him. Then they show that video to Rush. Rush laughs. He's just having fun with this. The second one is him doing an animal rights 
uh, uh, routine where he plays Born Free, the music with a machine gun fire in the background. And uh, at the end of it, it was it is shown to an animal rights organization, and they go ballistic on Rush. It is sent then to Rush, and Rush watches them going ballistic on him and bursts out laughing. The third one is his routine on feminazis, and he was having fun with feminazis. And again, they show this clip to or run this clip by this um, a feminist organization that goes bull, um, bonkers on Rush. They show it to Rush. Rush is laughing even harder. The bottom line was that this was a complete home run for Rush Limbaugh because America got to see this guy's having fun. He's irreverent. He is politically incorrect, but he's having fun with these people. And these people have no sense of humor. And they are all attacking him viciously and personally, which he never did to anyone. So that really showed the flavor of Rush. But you know what it showed me more than anything else was he really understood media. He understood how to, to work it to his advantage. He, said, he told me once that he said, you know, everybody says that I'm a, a politician, that I'm a, an analyst. He said, I'm not. He said, I'm an entertainer. I entertain. I'm a conservative who entertains. I think it's so fun to hear those, those personal interactions and just be able to look back on how, how unique Rush Limbaugh was. There wasn't anybody else like him. He totally change the game on on media really uh how how do you feel like he did um you know really become such uh such a disruption in the media i mean he was he was so unique what made him stand out from all of the other news commentary voices on the radio there was um, a columnist for the washington post william raspberry who passed away, um, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. He was one of the very, very left-wing uh, co- um, uh, columnists in, in, in that newspaper. Uh, he, he wrote a piece one day about Rush Limbaugh. Again, these being the very early days when Rush was first emerging on the scene. And he absolutely eviscerated Rush as being a right-wing uh, flamethrower, character assassin, bigot, you know, on and on and on it went. Uh, about two or three weeks later, uh, William Raspberry filed a second column. It was an apology to Rush Limbaugh. He did something that made him, in my book, a man's man. He admitted he'd never listened to the show, that he was going by what everybody was telling him about Rush. And he felt uneasy after he filed the column and decided to listen to Rush Limbaugh. And as the more he listened, the more he realized they were completely at odds politically. But this man was nothing like he was being portrayed as a personal human being. He was actually enjoying the show that he was watching. So he openly apologized to Rush. And that was Rush. You know, he, the, the, the similarities between Rush and Bill Buckley. Uh, are, are, are quite interesting. It's not that they thought the same way, and they did. It's not that they were both highly intelligent, which they were. It was that both were were portrayed 
as having these personalities that were ugly, uh, misogynist, bigoted, hate-filled, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, if you knew them both, you knew they were just the opposite of that. Uh, Rush was a very, he was a gentle man in that sense. He was a gentle person. Um, as is being said by so many who knew him, he was a quiet person. He was a humble person, uh, but but he was one whale of an entertainer, and he knew how to do it. How did he challenge conservatives? I think that's that was critical at, at a time, you know, in, in the 80s and 90s, he was this powerful voice that really challenged conservatives to stand up for what they believed in. Uh, I'll tell you how he did it. There's an anecdote. Uh, I don't know if it's being reported out there, um, but it's one I clearly remember. Um, he was uh, doing a show one day, and he it was either someone who called, I think it was somebody who called in, and uh, that person said, Rush had started his, his newsletter, his, his very, very successful uh, newsletter. Uh, the person who called in, this young guy called in and asked if he could have a free subscription. It was just a few dollars, uh, but he just couldn't afford it because he was out of work, et cetera, et cetera. And he explained that. Rush flat out refused and told him, that what he was saying was utterly inexcusable. And he said, in America, you can always find a way to to pay for things. Um, And you can always succeed if you choose to. And he said, you go do whatever you need to raise the money for this blasted subscription, but I'm not going to give it to you. They said, go out and have a, a, I think he called it a a donut sale. Well, um, the guy decided to do that. And he told Rush he would. Rush promoted it for him. And when he handed the donut sale, if I recall, I could have this number wrong, I think it was 25,000 people came to it. And he got the money for a subscription. <laughs> but that was Rush. He understood the left. He knew how to get under their skin, but not in a vicious way, in a fun way. It was a, a lobster somewhere in New England. And it was like a million years old or something. And because lobsters lived to be forever. And it was huge. And um, they were doing a um, some left wing group, environmental group, or or, uh, animal rights type group was doing an auction to raise money to auction it to put it in a big aquarium to care for it, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Rush on his radio always, you know, Rush always did these things as publicly as possible. Rush on his radio announced that he was going to bid on it and that he was going to win that bid. And when he did, he was going to take that lobster and cook it and eat it for dinner. And <laughs> them and oh, he giggled and he laughed. And, and of course, I think they took it off the market at that point. <laughs> Hearing these stories is just so great. I love it. I love how all of these uh, these facets kind of come out. But, you know, looking back, gosh, it it is wild uh, for so many years. Rush Limbaugh, he hosted his, his three-hour 
daily radio program. He was on more than 600 radio stations. And like you say, he had this way of really using humor to draw people in. Was he really one of the first who, uh, in your mind, figured out that balance of how do you how do you make a program both really fun and enjoyable, but also relay facts and information? You know, he was a trailblazer. I, I don't think he's he's been given enough credit uh, for being the businessman that he was. Um, he started that show. Uh, and and he was, you know, Paul Harvey had his commentary in the afternoon um, out of Chicago. There really wasn't any um, established talk show host out there. So Raj started it. Now, since he began his show 33 years ago uh, and was at, at number one, there have been quite literally thousands of people who have gone into this business, so many of them very, very talented at what they do. And yet, for 33 years, he was number one. Even though thousands challenged him, he was number one. And not only was he number one, but no one came close to him in, in, in challenging him. That's how much he dominated the market. And yes, you know, he did it. I, I, I think he did it this way. Uh, and he's not unique in this, but I think that he was uh, perhaps the, the most um, outstanding in this regard. He really did see his audience as his family. When he went on the radio show, he wasn't... Uh, he was he was talking to his audience. He was talking to his family. What a way for him to go. You know, uh, most anyone else who has cancer uh, you know, dies a horrific death. Um, most deaths are, are horrific. But he goes off silently into the night if he's a public figure. Rush was on his show up to almost the very end, and he was talking to his audience. He was telling them how he was doing. It was as if he was talking to a brother or talking to a sister. Um, that's the connection he had with his audience. And I don't know that any other show, uh, any other talk show host um, in the business today has that personal uh, connection as he does. Witness when people called in, how Rush responded. He, his tone of voice was always uh, respectful. To, to his guests, always respectful because he had such respect for his audience. So, so at the end, you know, I think it was, frankly, it was his audience that kept him alive um, mm -hmm. in, in his final months. I really do believe that. Wow. That's powerful. That's really powerful. If you had to summarize the, the legacy of Rush Limbaugh, how would you do that? I would say that Rush Limbaugh connected with the, cultural heart, not the political heart, but the cultural heart of America better than virtually any public figure in the history of the Republic, which is why it made him uh, unquestionably the most powerful media figure in the history of America. Wow.
Powerful words. Mr. Bozell, um, before we let you go, I, I do want to give you just a moment to share a little bit about the work of your organization, the Media Research Center. Well, uh, you know, right. uh, more than once publicly made the statement that uh, his show would not have been possible uh, without the work that we did, which is absolute nonsense because <laughs> Rush was was his own force of nature, and he frankly didn't need me for anything. Um, we began several months before Rush, uh, the Media Research Center, with with a with a focus on uh, trying to expose, confront, and expose the bias of, of the left wing press. At that time, 1987, uh, if you if you look at the national surveys, three out of four Americans believed that the media were objective. Um, 75% believed that the media had no bias, which is, of course, nonsensical. Uh, when we did our first meeting, we had nothing. We had no assets whatsoever. A handful of employees. We had uh, two desks and seven phones because we got a good deal. We had a black and white TV set, and we had a rented computer. And that was the Media Research Center. And uh, I was visiting with a, with a donor, and uh, she said, uh, with all due respect, who do you think you are going up against the the uh, the uh, a billion dollar industry? And uh, I told her that was a quite a good question, but she had to recognize two things. Number one was that if we didn't succeed, it really didn't matter what anybody believed in, whether you were pro life, pro tax cuts, pro Israel, just to make didn't make any difference, because your vision was going into the media as prime stake and coming out raw sewage to the American people, uh, which is, and, and if you couldn't communicate your message correctly, then it just didn't matter uh, what you did. So the public needed to learn that what they were getting when they were talking about abortion or talking about Israel or talking about tax cuts was a leftist perspective. Second point I made to her was that they had an underbelly and a weakness, an Achilles heel, and that was credibility. And if you could take away their credibility, what you would get as a natural response would be a market curiosity for an alternative, and you would open the door for alternative media. Now, I, I didn't know what that alternative media might be, but I did know market economics, and I knew that that could create it. Well, we were immediately successful with what we did because it was mana from heaven, um, the, 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 the research that we were able to accumulate. And as we started turning the, the trends with the public understanding of the bias, so too the market opportunity came in. So here comes Rush Limbaugh with his radio show, and he immediately connected with the public for that reason. And to give you an example of that, uh, I, I had my, my wife and I had a girlfriend from college, and uh, I had gotten uh, I'd had some surgery, some back surgery, and and uh, this this girl called me, and I was laying on my back one day, and she said, Brent, I just heard, and and I said, Well, that's very sweet. You didn't need to call, and she said, No, 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 I just heard, and I said, Look, it's just simple back surgery. I'm fine, and she said, What back surgery? I just heard this guy Rush Limbaugh on the radio. I had to call you. 
Um, the point being that somebody out there was talking, and certainly the people who were understanding that what they had been getting was a leftist bias and wanted to hear someone who might agree with them, suddenly comes this guy, Rush Limbaugh, who connects with them immediately. And that's what led to things like the, uh, the rush hours, where people would get together at lunch um, just to listen to him. Uh, he, he told me one time, that he called me one time and he, and he was doing these weekly appearances with his different radio stations around the country. And uh, uh, he, he called me once and he said, uh, 400 people showed up tonight. And then the next, next weekend, 800 people came to, to this rally. The next, the next weekend, 1,500 people came. He was genuinely befuddled by how he was connecting so well with the public. But that's because, so anyway, a long answer to, to, your, to your question. The Media Research Center, uh, our goal was to, to confront the press and to show America uh, just how uh, leftist they are, and they're getting worse by the minute. Uh, but the public understands that what they're getting is not objective truth. In fact, it's leftist propaganda. So really, your mission, the mission of the Media Research Center and the mission that Rush Limbaugh was on, very, very similar. You just all you know, had maybe a slightly different way of, of going about pursuing that mission, but uh, very much so in alignment. Well, but, but you know the big difference between Rush and, and, and uh, uh, everybody else on the left was he was honest. Well, you, yeah. now, isn't it interesting? I think you got – Rush was a, was a commentator. And a reporter is a reporter. A, a reporter is supposed to tell you the who, what, when, where of a story. A commentator is supposed to give commentary on that story. I would submit to you that there was more news that came from Rush Limbaugh than there was news that came from CNN from this perspective. Whether you're CNN or MSNBC or NBC or the Washington Post or the New York Times, doesn't matter. They have put a complete kibosh on whatever it is the conservative movement thinks, what it's doing, um, and, uh, its perspective on things, on the world. Rush could speak to that. That's news. When Rush talked about what might be happening in uh, Israel and the media were covering it up, because it went against their narrative. Rush was reporting news. When Rush talked about the economic picture that, uh, that you saw during the, the Trump administration month by month, that was news, because, and the media weren't reporting news. So ironically, at the end of the day, Rush gave more news to, the, to his audience than news outlets gave to theirs. Mm. Mr. Bozell, thank you. I think it's just a joy to hear these stories, uh, hear your reflections on the life of Rush Limbaugh. Let's go ahead and uh, and wrap up today's show by just taking a minute to hear to hear from the late Rush Limbaugh. Here's what he had to say on the Rush Limbaugh show back in December. But America's worth it. America is worth fighting for. America's worth not giving up. And that's why I, I think whatever form it takes, we will continue to fight for and to defend and, and to triumph. I know the odds are, I mean, they're stiff and they're steep. 
the American left is made up of a lot of people that hate this country. Hate is a very, very destructive um, frame of mind. It's a very, very destructive characteristic. And eventually it results in implosion. Cannot, you cannot survive on hatred. You cannot sustain a movement based on it. We just need to be patient while being vigilant and continuing to fight for what we believe in, knowing full well that we can prevail. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening to The Daily Signal Podcast. You can find The Daily Signal Podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back with you all on Monday. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Kate Trinko and Rachel Del Judas. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit DailySignal.com.